Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Connecticut became the 19th state to legalize marijuana for recreational use back in the summer of 2021. A year and a half later, in tandem with the launch of recreational cannabis sales, really, thousands of Connecticut residents have had low-level cannabis possession charges erased from their records. Many aspects of the recreational marijuana launch in Connecticut, including the erasure of cannabis convictions, they were really designed to reverse the disproportionate impact the war on drugs has had on people of color to allow Connecticut residents with old convictions on their records a shot at overcoming barriers to, um, to employment and housing. But the late implementation of the state's clean slate law has hundreds of thousands of people with other low-level convictions waiting for their chance. They could be waiting throughout 2023. Today on Where We Live, we'll discuss the holdup on critical record, criminal record expungement with several area journalists, and we'll take a big-picture look at Connecticut's recreational rollout. Joining me now to discuss first... Jaden Edison, the justice reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Good morning, Jaden. Good morning. Thanks for having me. John Craven, News 12 political reporter. Good morning, John. Morning, Frankie. And Natalie Furtick, who is the federal cannabis policy reporter for Politico. Good morning, hey Natalie. Hey. And if you're listening, you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. This hour, we ask you... How's Connecticut doing on the rollout of recreational marijuana? 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jaden, I want to talk to you first. I want to ask you, criminal records erasure for low-level marijuana possession proved under the state's recreational cannabis law. On New Year's Day, some 44,000 convictions were automatically erased. Why is that so critical, Jaden? What is critical, you know, when you talk about, as you mentioned, the the disproportionate impact that the war on drugs and the criminalization of of essentially, you know, what what are now considered drug have been considered drug offenses, the effect that has had on predominantly black and brown people, you know, in this country, um, Connecticut being no stranger to that, I think it's huge. You know, I I think you know when it when you look at the big picture, though, when it comes to clean slate in the particular in the in the forty four thousand, you know, people who've had their records expunged to know that there are a hundred thousands more who are essentially waiting um, to, to, to be in that same category, right. To be able to have a opportunity to attain housing and to, you know uh, you know, attain, you know, an education and, you know, attain jobs, right. Like these are all things that have, that have that tie into the bigger picture um, that, that all are relevant um, to the greater conversation when we're talking about, you know, those expungements. John Craven, news 12 political reporter, we just talked about the clean slate law. What's exactly in that? And were these 44,000 convictions covered in that? Yeah. So there's a little bit of confusion there and it, it's understandable, but there are actually two different pieces of legislation we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So the the cannabis erasures were part of the cannabis legalization law that passed in the in, in 2021. There was a separate bill that advocates had been pushing for for a long time uh, called the Clean Slate Law. Um, and, you know, there was some back and forth between, um, you know, 
uh, I, criminal justice advocates and progressive Democrats and Governor Lamont about how far that law was going to go. Uh, initially, it included uh, a lot more, you know, uh, lower level felony uh, convictions. It still includes some, but, uh, you know, at the governor's pushing they really pared that down now so the the 44,000 cannabis convictions that that were erased um the Lamont administration says that was fairly straightforward because the cannabis law uh the legalization law pretty well clearly spells out you know x y and z get automatically deleted and then there are some other convictions that that people can uh, apply to to get erased um the clean slate law is a lot broader. And from what the Lamont administration has said, there are technological computer processing issues that go into sort and some of these, you know, convictions almost have to be, you know, um, I, I guess sort of manually gone through to to see if they qualify. That's what we've told is the hold up with that. But they are actually two separate pieces of legislation. State saying that it's going to cost $5 million for technology upgrades to update whatever the judicial branch records are to account for some of these. Jaden, what are you hearing about, uh, I guess, the, what, what John Graven's talking about with these technology upgrades, but also the fact that maybe they need to work through some things uh, in the legislature. Who kind of qualifies in, in Clean Slate, as you understand it, or who may qualify? Right. So clean slate essentially would, would automatic. So there, there's two parts to it, right? You have the automatic erasure part of it, which essentially will erase the criminal records of people seven years after the date of their conviction for a misdemeanor or 10 years after their conviction for a certain low level felony. So there's that part. And then the second part is that there is no automatic erasure if there were convictions on or prior to January 1st, 2000. So if someone falls into that category right they would have to petition um the court to essentially have their 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 record you know erased and so uh this is all you know it, it's, it's a part of this bigger conversation right because when we talk about the delay and you talk about you know the price tag associated with technology upgrades and uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know clean slate was essentially it was signed in, in june 2021 and the idea was that you would have an entire year to be able to work out the kinks of okay you know we need money toward this or hey let's figure out how to work this system right right before full implementation on january 1st of this year but i, I think a, a lot of frustration has sort of you know come to the forefront because you know news around this delay didn't come until just a few short weeks before before clean slate was was slated to be fully implemented and so there's a lot of parts to it but when it comes to the technicalities of it there is the the automatic erasure part and then like as i mentioned before there are people who will have to petition the court if they do want to be considered for criminal or, or excuse me have their uh, records erased or expunged the petition process happens online at a state portal website and we'll give you that in a moment but there's that process where these folks will be able to petition. The website's live, but that doesn't mean you can petition yet. And even before that, John Craven, State Senator Gary Winfield says, we haven't nailed that down in terms of what legislation needs to be passed to clean up clean slate. So it sounds like, John Craven, there's going to be some rankling over this bill at the legislative level. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, part of the problem is that the governor wasn't really on board with how far it went either. I mean, you know, 
he didn't really commit to signing this legislation until the last minute. And even when he signed it, he expressed reservations about, you know, um, how far some of the felony convictions went. So I think, you know, you know, I think you're going to see some Republicans uh, and maybe even some moderate Democrats in the legislature, you know, maybe want to revisit some of those. I mean, obviously, public safety has been a huge topic since the pandemic started, you know, and you know, there are a lot of reasons why crime spiked briefly in, in 2020 and 2021. But I think it's still an issue that a lot of voters think about. And I think that there are going to be lawmakers who want to capitalize on that and say, you know what, maybe it's not so safe to be erasing certain felonies. Um, you know, how far that gets in the legislature this year, I, I don't see it really getting that far, but I think the discussion will come up. Jaden, we're both at a news conference recently in Hartford where Winfield and the state's undersecretary for criminal justice, Mark Pelka, addressed the delays. You at that news conference asked him about the 250, maybe 280,000 conviction left to be cleared. What are advocates saying in response to the clean slate delay? You know, I think there's real frustration, right? I mean, when you look at the timeline, um, as, as John just mentioned, I mean, this this bill was essentially signed in 2021. So, and at the time, right, you had Governor Lamont who really pushed for a tapered list of, of eligible crimes for erasure um, during the entire negotiation period when it came to clean slate. So you already have the governor, as John just mentioned, uh, who, who was who seemingly a little reluctant and and, and uh, there was some uncertainty about if he, you know, fully supported the bill and whatnot. And so over the course of the last year, right, I mean, we've seen Governor Lamont on the campaign trail, right? In October, he had a, uh, he he stood with, you know, uh, Republican uh, gubernatorial candidate Bob Stefanowski, and they spoke about clean slate, right? And it, and it seemed as if everything was sort of in place to, 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 everything was ready to go into motion. But then just a few weeks before December, and for advocates, it was just a few weeks before that around the Thanksgiving holiday, you hear that, you know, there won't be essentially full implementation for the just short of what, 300,000 people um, when it comes to to the clean slate. And so I, I think there's real frustration to answer your question. And, you know, I, I'm on a bunch of these calls and I, you know, I talk to folks within the justice community on a routine basis. And I, I do think this is a part of a larger trend of of people who do this work who don't feel that Governor Lamont and his administration champions the things that are important to them, you know, champions and supports, you know, people who are behind bars or people who who have, you know, who have who are no longer incarcerated, right, but still suffer the consequences as most of the the, the folks um, on the clean slate. That's what the law is targeted to do. And so I, back to the simple part of your question is there's just real frustration. And and I, I think there's a, a, a desire for more transparency when it comes to this administration. And, and Jaden, it sounds like there may be a tipping point later this year when there is full implementation, if there is full implementation, because Pelka, who I mentioned earlier, is the state's undersecretary for criminal justice. He tells me it's more like you're reporting in the study that you allude to as 250, maybe 280,000 convictions left to be cleared. Pelka says it's maybe it's more like 50,000 on top of the 44,000 convictions they already cleared. Where's the discrepancy? Yeah, you know, it's and, and that's the thing, right? And I think that is part of the frustration when it comes to advocates is like what we're hearing publicly. I mean, you've had officials, I mean, chairs of the Judiciary Committee and the legislature who've talked about this number of around 300,000 people who would benefit from clean slate. So there are discrepancies there. But when, when you look at it, right, I mean, you've had Governor Lamont in the last week who's publicly gone on record and said, hey, 
we're going to get this thing passed in the next six to 12 months, who essentially guaranteed and, and said on the record at that press conference that you and I both attended, that Clean Slate would be fully implemented at some point in 2023, probably the second half of 2023. So again, I just it just goes back to the the the, the miscommunication or the discrepancies and what we're hearing. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, though, where you go back and look at some of that public testimony during that time, I mean, this bill is is would help a lot of people i mean there are people who testified and i think the the general consensus was that you know when people have access to jobs when they have access to housing when they have access to education right they are more likely to earn higher wages and they're less likely to recidivate right and i think the studies and research backs that up i mean there was the study out of michigan you know from the university of michigan found that people who obtain you know expungement experience have a sharp upturn in their wage and employment so we're talking about you know, full implementation would truly help. And when you talk about the, the the racial wealth gap, you talk about disparities and all these things, you know, and how black and brown people are predominantly affected, you know, by, you know, felony conviction, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's this real, you know, frustration, real anticipation on one end and hope that this thing is going to get through. And on the other end, just again, outright frustration uh, in the, the miscommunication and the disparities and what we're hearing from officials. And, and Frankie, I'll, I'll just jump in real quick. You asked about uh, tweaks that might happen to the law. I, I think the thing you might be more likely to see this session is some clarification about what exactly uh, qualifies and what doesn't mm-hmm. and how certain cases should be treated in terms of processing that uh, for erasure. Um, you guys probably remember uh, when this news broke, uh, you know, just before New Year's um, that, you know, the 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 automatic erasure wasn't going to happen on January 1. Um, there there was a letter that the state court system sent sent to the legislature saying, um, you know, we have X, Y and Z questions, essentially data processing questions about, you know, how to implement this law. Uh, so I think there are some parts of the law that might need to be tightened up and and hopefully that will address some of the disparity in the numbers that we're seeing if they can really tighten down the, the legislative language. I think Gary Winfield, the Senate uh, Judiciary Chair, uh, really is sort of aiming to do that this session. Access to jobs and education, as Jaden had mentioned earlier, and and Beth Hines, who's who's with Community Partners in Action. This is a local organization that tries to connect people that come out of prison to any kind of resource, a, a ride or a job. That says that when you have a conviction off your record, now when you go and apply for housing or something like that, the person that applies next to you won't have that advantage over you, won't have a conviction. Uh, You'll have a conviction and that person won't. So that'll be a great thing about this whole thing. Natalie, Natalie Fertig is the federal cannabis policy reporter for Politico. Natalie, why historically do we need to now look at not not necessarily? I know historically is always a scary word in it. And it, and it brings up, it conjures up like maybe a long response. But why is it so important to to consider decriminalizing cannabis when we talk about legalizing cannabis? Not necessarily just the, just, just the fact that we've decriminalized it, but what are we reversing here? What What's historically happened to, to stigmatize cannabis here? Oh, man. I mean, that's a you're right. That's a very long answer. Um, I mean, we know from the history of cannabis criminalization in the United States 
um, that it's been used specifically and intentionally to target black and brown communities. I mean, the ACLU puts out data um, regularly and shows that there are still, even in states that have legalized cannabis where um, criminal activity has decreased dramatically on cannabis, still the, the small sections where people are still being arrested for something like that, the, the discrepancies between white people who are arrested and black and brown people who are arrested still exist in those states. So there's you know, something that I've noticed covering this for the last four years is that lawmakers and, and the general public tend to look at cannabis in a vacuum when really cannabis is just part of the larger system. So if there's arrest discrepancies and in, in a state, it's not going to go away because you legalize cannabis. Um, but undoing those, you know, those discrepancies is obviously giving people a leg up who who had not been given one for so long. And so that's why so many states and actually the East, this is kind of the thing that the East is actually leading in in cannabis because Colorado, Washington, Washington, Oregon, California did not do this um, in the you know mid 2010s when they were legalizing because at the time it was sort of like a bridge too far for local voters and lawmakers to blanketly expunge records. And now that Illinois, New York, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts have started to do this, you know Western states are actually going back and saying, should we also do this? And what are the models that the Eastern states are doing? that we can look at either to improve upon or to say this worked in this place and we're going to do it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting sort of, you know, the West tossed the weed ball to the East coast. Hmm. The East coast said, we're going to add to it and is now tossing it back. Wonderful. Oh my God. That was a great conversation. I'm so sorry about, uh, I'm so sorry there, Natalie, to ask you such a broad question, but it's important to understand that history and what happened around the early 80s, maybe 1982, when the Reagans and the uh, White House uh, declares essentially a war on drugs and how it had impact. Uh, folks, if you're listening right now, you can give us a call, 1-888-720-WNPR, if you want to join in on this conversation. We talked about passing the weed ball from the West Coast, essentially, to the East. Who's the Who's the model here, Natalie, for... This is my last question for the segment here. Natalie, who's the... Who's the model here for maybe an eastern state or something like that? It, Connecticut, it sounds like, is doing well in this regard, but but maybe it's some other state that is the model for kind of folding in expungement into the recreational rollout. Would you, who would you say is the model? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that there's not really enough years out yet to say this state really, it worked and it was successful because obviously – um, expungements are going to take time, but I think a lot of people are looking at Illinois, frankly, um, they did a blanket expungement, something that I've noticed in looking at states that have done expungements is when people have to apply for the expungements that tends to, um, to make them not accessible for some people. Some people never get the memo. Um, they don't have the resources to go through the application process. They fill out the applications wrong. There's just sort of, it, it creates a benchmark for people to have to hit um, to be able to get those expungements. So um, Illinois did not do that. They partnered with a nonprofit organization called Code for America, and they developed a computer program that just expunged all 
cannabis records of a specific type. Um, back to the idea that cannabis works within the systems that already exist. Um, I think expungements are a great example of this. A lot of states have said, oh, you know, we've got a great idea. Let's expunge these cannabis records and then gotten into the criminal justice system and realized like Jaden and John were talking about, you know, there's there they need to get records online. Um, and these are issues that people in that are in the criminal justice system have been meeting with for decades, right? The barriers for them, um, you know, if say they had a record that after so many years was going to be sealed or expunged, the criminal justice system sometimes leaves them out and forgets to do those things. And so cannabis is sort of shining a light or highlighting parts of these systems that have always existed and a lot of people have never paid attention to um, and saying, oh, wow, this is messed up. We actually need to do a lot more work to fix these things than we thought we did. Political reporter Natalie Furtick, stick around. News 12's John Craven, stick around as well. Thank you guys so much uh, for this conversation. Jaden Edison, we're going to say goodbye to you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about really the important work of, of, of cannabis conviction erasure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Jaden Edison is with the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you, Jaden. We'll continue this conversation right after the break. You can join us, Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano, and back with me to dig into all things recreational marijuana and what's ahead for Connecticut, I've got John Craven from News 12 Political uh, News 12. He's a political reporter there. And I've got Natalie Furtick, who's a federal cannabis policy reporter for Politico. Natalie, I'm so immature that every time I think about cannabis, I think about somebody asking for a, a puff of a, of a cannabis cigarette or something like that. Uh, some some people I knew back in the day wouldn't wouldn't use the word cannabis. Help me. How do you, when you're doing your, your writing and your reporting, what are some other terms we can use here for for marijuana or to sound maybe more natural because it's been stigmatized so much in the past that we have to use these words, but help me with some other terms here. Yeah. So, I mean, weed, I write, use the word weed a lot. I think it's a pretty (laughs) common colloquialism. I know that some advocates I talk to like to stay away from the term for pot. Uh, They think that it has more of a stigma to it. Um, But I do want to, you know, kind of 
point out, I cover politics and policy specifically. So I have to use the word marijuana because cannabis includes both marijuana and hemp. And I think that's something that people miss. Yeah. I actually get people people on Twitter yelling at me about it a lot. <laughs> um, but marijuana per the federal government is cannabis with more than 0.3% THC. And hemp is cannabis with less than 0.3% THC. Scientists would not agree with that. Botanists <laughs> would not agree with that. But that's the federal government's definition. So I think when we're writing, you see a lot of people writing about marijuana, cannabis, hemp, using these words interchangeably. It's pretty confusing for people, but like that's what's going on. Cannabis is both, but hemp and marijuana are separate. God, I appreciate that that uh, that cannabis education so very much. Thank you for that, Natalie. And if yeah. and if folks want to join in on the conversation with us, they can call eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. It's a good conversation, and I just want to say that two medical dispensaries have been tapped for the adult use uh, uh, recreational cannabis uh, rollout. Uh, can- Connecticut licensed nine of them to sell recreational pot here, but only seven of them were permitted to go last Tuesday when the state launched recreational marijuana sales. According to the the Department of Consumer Protection, seven shops made $359,130 on opening day. John, is that high? Is that low? What do we know? Um, well, we'll excuse the pun, high. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I'm hearing that it's really low compared to what Massachusetts was pulling in uh, just in their first few days. Uh, But keep in mind that, you know, this is a pretty limited rollout and and it was designed that way on purpose. I mean, like you mentioned, nine dispensaries have the state licensing to start doing retail sales. Only seven of them, you know, were finished building out and getting all the, I, I think, you know, local um local stuff sewn up that they needed to do so we only have seven places throughout the state um they're fairly small limits on what people can buy it's it's a quarter of an ounce which um you know per transaction which you know comes out to i like i think 10 to 14 pre-rolls or um you know um yeah, and I think seven edible. to fourteen pre rolls. Yeah, you yeah. got it. You got it. You know your measurements. Go ahead. <laughs> I've reported it so much. Um, Two cartridges. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, so I mean, I mean, those are modest amounts for you know a recreational user. But you know, I I think um, you know I think that you know again, it's it's sort of a soft launch. Um, the selection, the dispensaries tell me isn't great. Um, you know, some of them only got. Uh, gummies literally the day before retail sales launched. I think others of them still hadn't got them yet. And and part of that is because this stuff has to be completely produced in state. And keep in mind that Connecticut has only grown for medical purposes for the last couple of years. And so all these products that are coming online for recreational use, you know, there has to be a whole production industry that comes up around that mm-hmm. the licensing process with DCP has been uh you know somewhat slow I'm sure we'll talk about that um and so I think the uh the product offerings have have yet to catch up whereas you know if you look at a state like Massachusetts they I think they got off the ground a little faster and obviously they have a much larger product selection I I I hear what you're saying in this conversation because for the purposes of this conversation, I went to a local uh, marijuana website here 
and saw what their their gummy offering was, and it looked like uh, the the two things that they offered were these like cough drop looking things that were, I guess. Uh, Strawberry and, and grape flavor. Not the most appetizing, but it seems like they only had two items, too, versus they had 80 of one product of the flour. And I think there was like something like 50, 60 of the pre rolls. So not a big offering yet on the gummies. Hey, John's talking about a, a comparison to, to Massachusetts. I saw that back in 2018, Natalie, Massachusetts did $440,000 on its first day of business in the state selling weed for recreational use. I got that from boston.com. Was that a lot of money, Natalie? Can you offer us any kind of points of comparison here? We have two numbers so far. We have Connecticut's 359K number and Massachusetts' 440K number. Yeah, you know, frankly, I would even have expected Massachusetts to do more back then because it was the first in the region to go to full recreational sales. Um, I mean, you compared to last year's recreational openings new mexico and new jersey both did 1.9 million on their first days um new jersey's obviously wow. a, a state of nine million people but new mexico has less than three million people um i think the i can't fully explain massachusetts and why they didn't have a, a huge amount of sales on their first day i think that john brought up a couple really good points which is you know availability of product, the number of dispensaries that are um, present. When you think about New Jersey, you've got all of the cross-border traffic from Pennsylvania, especially Philadelphia, coming into the state. You've got a lot of universities with graduate students and, you know, millennials and Gen Z are um, statistically much more likely to use cannabis, even though one of the largest growing markets in the United States is boomers. Um, But, you know, New Mexico, what sorry boomers boomers yeah the boomers the boomers are getting on the weed train um but one of the things i think that you have to take into consideration with connecticut is that you guys are a small state it doesn't take a lot of time to travel out of your state and into other places where cannabis is legal so if people already have relationships with um you know a shop owner in massachusetts or a guy or a gray market shop owner in New York City, even though, you know, full on recreational legal sales have not started there yet. It's pretty easy to get weed in New York. Um, People are often going to stick with that for a while. Um, There's a product they like, like John pointed out, there's not, um, you know, as much product availability in Connecticut. And then the last thing to think about is cost. So if Connecticut wants to get people to come to Connecticut, they're going to need to have better weed and cheaper weed. Than everyone else around them in order to 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 punt those sales higher, which is something that's happened before. Um, but unfortunately for Connecticut, they are legalizing not in a bubble or in a vacuum like a lot of states have where they're legalizing. You know, Colorado was surrounded by all illegal states when they legalized and they still are. Um, Natalie, so what's what's the- because of it's the only place that's available. What's the deal with the tax revenues in Connecticut? Our, our our lieutenant governor says that we're competitive. I think it's around 20% when you factor in all the taxes. We have a 6% uh, uh, revenue tax uh, or state sales tax. And then there's about 14% of total other taxes. The state says some of that goes back to the community. What what are your thoughts on, on our tax uh, level? 
I mean, I think that's that's pretty in line with a lot of other places. Um, you know, you but you you see people even in like from Oregon to Washington, they're both legal states with a lot of products, but Washington has slightly lower taxes. <clears throat> and people who live in that border region, they're not going to drive an hour, but they'll drive 15 minutes to not pay taxes. So at all. Um, right. So um, that I, that can make even the slightest differences. Like if I, you know, being competitive versus being the cheapest can make a pretty big difference. Um, but one of the things that I think is forgotten is the fees, the licensing fees for the producers, because those fees are also passed on to the consumers in the actual cost of the marijuana. So this was California's pro problem. They have a really high barrier to entry for growers and distributors. They have to pay a lot of money up front. They have to pay a lot for their licenses. And so there's no way that they can undercut the illicit market in California that doesn't have to pay those fees. And they've really, really struggled since they legalized now more than five years ago. Get your weed in Connecticut in Brantford. Uh, also, you can get it in New Haven at a, at, a, at, a, at a store. There's also online shops for each of these places. Meriden, Newington, also Willimantic as well. Seven places so far that are open for business and two to follow that have also been licensed that are not ready yet in Torrington and Danbury. Also, Montville is one of those towns that's ready to go as well. Speaking of these dying dispensaries that are currently licensed to sell pot for recreational use, more will follow to come our partnerships the state has put in place to promote social equity. We have a friend on Twitter asking us to dig into equity, asking, please talk about this. Willimantic has been hit hard by the war on drugs. Why is it so important to have a social equity conversation, Natalie, when we talk about marijuana and cannabis? Yeah, I think this is a really big part of the conversation because, um, I mean, in the words of many, many people I have spoken to, um, you know, why would you legalize something that has been used to put black and brown people disproportionately behind bars for almost 80 years and yet uh, then let predominantly white business owners make money off of it, um, which we see a lot is happening one of the biggest hurdles that I've watched states go through over and over again with equity is what I was talking about before, which is that cannabis exists as a business within the larger structure of American capitalism and American business. And you hit a lot of hurdles. Um, you know, equity business owners oftentimes are going to hit more hurdles. If they've had a criminal justice record, they may not have been able to gain the necessary business experience that's going to, you know, elevate. I've talked to people that are like, well, I was in real estate for 20 years in Orange County, and now I opened a cannabis dispensary. And that's just a level of privilege that a lot of the equity applicants don't have and connections into capital, venture capital, connections with, um, you know, zoning boards and city councils and all of those relationships that make it easier to open and operate a business in any given place. Uh, you know, those are part of the inequities that exist in the larger business world in the United States of America that, people of color and people with records already have to navigate and are not able to navigate as easily as people with privilege who are often white people. Um, and, and so that's something that 
a lot of equity programs are hitting and meeting and have to deal with, um, and it'll be really interesting to see how Connecticut um, deals with that in their program. And it's not just it's not just distribution as well. And John, I'll let you get in here in a second, but it's not just distribution as well. It's also connecting people of color to to jobs and production as well, growing the pot and the uh, and yeah. cannabis here going in half. Go ahead, sorry. That- Sorry, that's something that Connecticut is doing also intentionally that I think other states haven't as much where they have partnerships where other states have just looked at the dis- like the licenses for growing or for dispensaries as the equity product. And, you know, a lot of people said, hey, we just want jobs in the industry. Like we don't want to have to have the whole pressure of starting a small business on our own. We just want a job. How do we do that? And so that's something new that Connecticut's doing that I- I'm interested to watch. John, go ahead. Yeah, and you know, Frankie, one of the ironic things is that the social equity aspect of uh, aspect of this has ironically sort of made it harder for people uh, that it was designed to help to get into the industry. The the reason I say that, um, you know, th- there's so much paperwork um, and, and so many requirements to prove that you know, you are a legitimate social equity applicant and that um, you are not a front for a larger multi-state operator. Um, You know, we interviewed an attorney last week who uh, has represented a lot of the the applicants in the Connecticut selection process. And, you know, the just amount of paperwork that you have to submit and you know, forms and verification. Um, you know, like Natalie mentioned, uh, people who you know, people who are trying to get into this from the social equity standpoint. Um, you know, I mean, that's a lot for someone with an MBA. I mean, much less someone who you know has never had much business experience. Um, and and so, on one hand, I think the state is is making an earnest attempt to you know make this a as level a playing field as they can. Um, But on the other hand, the ironic thing is that uh, it sort of turned into a barrier to entry for a lot of social equity applicants. To the point of why the state probably should do this, if you look at the website that the state has uh, set up, they have like a cannabis portal on the state website. They will show you pockets of, of Connecticut cities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, and it's really stark because you're seeing a lot of the dots in these cities. The cannabis convictions we were talking about in segment one, 11% of those convictions that were erased happened in Hartford. So though, so far, the state uh, really to come up with partnerships, they've put in place to to promote social equity. They've, uh, they've, they've uh, had this uh, cannabis social equity council, and they've greenlit five joint ventures and rejected nine requests. Something else I want to talk about, the accountability project that we have here at Connecticut Public, or TAP as we call them, recently traced the history of the state's most well-established cannabis businesses, examining whether they fulfilled plans made during the licensing process to give back to their communities. This is something I want you to react to, Natalie, if you can. They found, TAP, our team, found that 35 businesses expecting donations never got a dime. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the that's not totally unheard of um, in both government and uh, 
um, cannabis. Uh, I, I'm just thinking of Colorado uh, was when they legalized, they said, hey, our, our tax revenue is going to go to education. And, you know, sales began in January and money went to started going to schools in November. And then I remember um, eventually the Denver Post went back and checked up and said, not all of the money is going to where they said the money was going to go to. So um, I think this is something that it's good to keep track of, um, you know, in a larger political sense. Also, you know, government does not always do the things that they say they're going to do, and they need local journalists to keep them accountable. So I'm glad you guys are doing that. It's really, really important. Um, but, you know, I think that it's sort of a time will tell thing of if these issues get wrinkled out is how I would approach it from sort of watching other states go through this bumpy roller coaster of legalization and, and getting all of the, the kinks sorted out. Oh, thank you so much for, for talking about what local reporters need to do in this coverage. We can't do it if it weren't for individuals like you, Natalie, covering this for the last, uh, at least in terms of uh, pot rollouts for the last five, six years that have been uh, happening. So thank you so much for your work. Well, I would honestly say the complete turnaround also, which is that, you know, national news organizations, I worked in, I've worked in local news before this, and we exist on the backs of local reporters and local news organizations, especially with something like cannabis, because there's a lot of things that we can't keep track of that we know because the Connecticut Mirror or Connecticut Public Radio or local oh. TV stations are uncovering and looking at. And then we can draw the dots to say, hey, this is happening in many states or, hey, federal government, are you doing something about this? So thank you so much, you. Natalie. So much. And and uh, John Craven's going to stay with us, but we're so sad to say goodbye to Natalie Furtick, federal cannabis uh, policy reporter for Politico. Thank you so much for joining Where We Live today. Thanks so much for having me. John Craven, stay with me. Listeners, you're tuned in to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. On Fridays on Connecticut Public, it's Frankie and Johnny. My pal John Henry Smith joins me on the show. But today on Where We Live, it's Frankie and Johnny Craven. You like that? How, how can you cheat on me with another John? I thought I was the only John in your life. Frankie. You know, these days with the economy, <laughs> what it is, and things are where there is, sometimes cheaters got to cheat. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny that we're doing this on the radio because when we go out on stories, I mean, it, it's just like this, you and me. So it's nice to do this and let people listen in. Oh, my God. So happy to be joined by you. And if, if people want to ask us a question about a bill or maybe they want to talk politics with Frankie and Johnny Craven here, they can join the conversation. 888-720-9677. And you dug through more than like 100 new bills set to hit the floor of this session. Maybe they'll hit the floor. We'll see. What did you find related to marijuana? Okay, so um, there are a couple of things that would tweak the cannabis law. Uh, you know, we were talking about fairness and equity, right? And one of the big complaints we heard, this was a big loophole in the cannabis law. I, I really think they should have anticipated this, but 
you know, with all the things that you have to try to anticipate with a law like that, I, I can't give them too much grief for for missing it. But um, when they created the social equity lottery, they didn't put any sort of cap on how many times someone could apply. So think mm. about it like playing the Connecticut lottery. The more tickets you buy, the better chance you have of winning. So um, how much does that ticket cost? <laughs> right. Well, three hundred thousand dollars. There was three million. I forget what the number is to to to, to enter for a license. No, the, the the lottery slots were were cheaper. I I think they were a couple hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars. Ah, okay, gotcha. Um, it, it was three million to convert to um you know to a hybrid growing operation if you were already growing medical. Yes, pot. there you go. Thank you. Um, Thank yeah, you it's a lot of numbers to keep track of, and I'm not always great at it. But yeah, um, you know, whatever the number was, it, you know, it, it, you know, I, I think you know, mom and pop groups could maybe afford to put five, six seven applications in for the lottery but if you had access to um if you had access to a big multi-state operator like ensa up in massachusetts they could bankroll hundreds of of lottery applications and so um some people got selected for the lottery who you know were just had access to that kind of money and so um one of the things that they're looking at doing is either putting a cap on future lottery applications or raising the application fee so the more applications you put in the more you have to pay uh, i don't know if that will necessarily address the big money issue it might just invite bigger money uh, but it's one of the ideas out there um you know um also talking about fairness you know it's it's very hard to get into this business not just because the paperwork but access to like capital right i mean you know banks can't lend to you generally because it's is illegal at the federal level so um jason rojas who is the house democrats leader uh, has filed a bill to um you know give cannabis businesses certain tax write-offs uh for business expenses that might not normally be tax write-offs so it's things like that i think that you're going to see this time and then on the other side the republicans are trying to put the brakes on this they've actually filed a bill that would suspend retail sales altogether uh, until a number of conditions are met, uh, one of which would be that police departments are fully staffed on what are called drug recognition experts. This is law enforcement's best attempt to do a sobriety test, if you will, for uh, high drivers, uh, where no, no such tests really exist. Um, but uh, it, it's a, a series of cognitive tests that uh, a specially trained police officer can do. A drug uh, recognition expert. Yeah. And so, you know, um, part of the cannabis law was that, um, you know, the police had to staff up on these DREs. And I'm not exactly sure how far along they are in that process. Um, but the Republicans in this bill want to pump the brakes on the retail sales until those numbers to, come up. To me, it kind of sounds like with police reform where several things came up that were really an, 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 an opportunity to try to reverse the, the whole thing. And it sounds like that's what's happening with public safety. Now, John Craven, I say we only got about like three minutes left in the program. So do you mind if we whip around just a little bit to get some kind of new news out there? 
Yeah, what do you want to know? I uh, want to. I, I, I want to know. First of all, I had you dig through like a, a bunch of bills here. You were going to do that anyway. I heard that this session's going to rock. <laughs> I swear, I've gotten more response to this tweet. I think than anything I've put out in years. There is a bill. I'm going to. I'm going to pull it up for you right now. Um, you better do it quick. We got like yes. a minute on this time. Yeah. Okay. okay. So somebody has filed a bill that would uh, create criminal penalties for dismantling. A stone wall. <coughs> so Connecticut lawmakers are leaving no stone turned this year. And hopefully they're not stonewalling either. Uh, hopefully they're not stone. <laughs> or sto- stonios. <laughs> oh, my God. That's uh, that's uh, that's uh, stonios were one of those uh, things that the attorney general, uh, William Tong, showcased yes. to folks that were like these fake uh these 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 businesses were or these like uh, bad businesses, I guess, were putting out there to try to get kids to buy uh, marijuana. And they were saying kids were eating it and, and it was a real bad thing. Nonetheless, uh, just really quickly, what about some some uh, some items related to alcohol? I understand this may be a session where we talk about selling wine in grocery stores. Yeah, I mean, forgive me for being skeptical, but I mean, you know, this comes up. So often, and I know the grocery stores are going to make a big push for it this year. Um, they've done that in the past. We'll see what happens. I mean, the package store lobby is incredibly powerful in this state. I mean, you know, Malloy tried to get rid of the bottle minimum price over and over again. They they killed that. I mean, just getting you know uh, Sunday sales was was uh, you know an uphill battle. So I don't know if I see it going anywhere, but you know, I might be proven wrong. And just really quickly, I think about 30 seconds or so left in the program, we now understand that there's going to be a special election to try and fill the seat in the 100th Assembly District for Quentin Williams. What can you tell me is the latest on trying to trying to fill that seat and maybe a, a new committee assignment? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he was in charge or co-chair of the powerful public, uh, the labor committee, uh, which, you know, has been the driving force behind a number of major bills. Uh, So um, they've replaced him on that committee uh, so they can now get down to work. Um, You know, as for, you know, who's going to jump in the ring, we haven't heard any names officially yet, uh, but I imagine there's going to be a lot of interest in Middletown. And we know that uh, Manny Sanchez is in on labor. John Craven, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for joining us on Where We Live. I'm Frankie Graziano. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Hey, you can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. This is Where We Live.